tonight we're going to talk about Jesus and the Old Testament. And, uh, well, I'm really excited about it. Um, I, I want to show you, this is an image I do sometimes um, just to kind of reveal something. I know I'm off camera for a minute. Let me show you this. So this is like a Bible. I just found a big one. It's like a study Bible. Um, but I want to give you a visual here real quick. So um, we're going to talk about Jesus in the Old Testament, which effectively is this much of the Bible. So this over here is the Old Testament. This right here is the New. I, I hope you guys can see that difference, right? So this is the New Testament. This is the Old Testament. And tonight we're talking about Jesus and his interactions with this. Incidentally, um, if you're interested in reading uh, the Old Testament, um, starting this week, every Thursday morning at nine o'clock in the morning at Together Cafe, um, I'm going to be hanging out uh, reading through the Old Testament. And I'd love to discuss that. So we'll start reading Genesis 1 this week. Um, and if you're interested in joining me, just show up at the Together Cafe at nine o'clock. I'd be happy to buy a cup of coffee. Um, if you're, you know, high maintenance and your coffee costs like $7, you can do that, but I'll buy you a drip coffee for sure. Um, and you, or you can buy your own and just hang out with me and talk about the Old Testament. Anyway, a lot of us, um, as we talk about this, I want to start just by saying this. A lot of us assume, I think, that there's a rift between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That the, there's like the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. That the Old Testament's full of crazy stories, right? And the New Testament's full of kind, practical wisdom. That the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, that God is angry. And in the New Testament, God is really loving. We assume this kind of rift. And friend, tonight, I want to bring some of Jesus' teaching front and center to dispel this idea. I want to show you that Jesus understood himself to be perfectly in sync with the way that God has revealed himself to the Hebrew people in the 2,000 years before he was born. In fact, far from distancing himself from the Old Testament, Jesus lifted up its importance and claimed that you and I should understand all of the Old Testament through him. That somehow the life and the teachings and the work of Jesus is this lens through which we should understand the entire history of God's work in this world. No one loved and embodied the Old Testament more than Jesus. Jesus and the Old Testament. That's what we're talking about tonight. You ready? So I'm going to kind of go through this verse by verse tonight. Our passage, Kirsten read earlier, is from Matthew chapter 5, which is the first book of the New Testament. Uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, I believe. Um, and we're going to go through that. So the first verse we're looking at is this. Do not think, Jesus said, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Most of what we're going to say tonight parks here, Okay. The law and the prophets, he says. So as you read the New Testament, you're going to come across that phrase a lot, the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets is essentially shorthand for the Bible to the Jewish people at that time. This is their Old Testament for the most part. Uh, there's some variation there. But, but the law and the prophets, we should hear it in today's vernacular as, uh, as the Old Testament, basically. This is what Jesus said. So I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't think I've come to abolish the Old Testament. Do, do you think that Jesus came to do away with the Old Testament? Hear Jesus say no. He has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. What God has been up to in Old Testament times, Jesus has come to fulfill. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So to an English speaking, like Western mind, like us here, probably, this can sound a little bit like ending something. If I've fulfilled something that might have this connotation of ending a thing, to fulfill something might have this implication of it not being needed anymore. 
Like it's done once it's fulfilled. It can maybe sound like that to us, but to the Jewish culture in mind, which is who Jesus was speaking to on the side of that hill. He wasn't speaking to me in my bedroom doing quiet time or whatever. He was speaking to a group of, a motley crew of Jewish people on the side of a hill. Fulfillment probably meant something a little different to them. And I think this is kind of fun. So I want you to hear me get this for you nerds. Uh, Jesus, we have this recorded in Greek, but he's speaking this Greek translation to a, to a Greek. He might've probably been speaking Aramaic or Hebrew at this moment. It's just translated into Greek for us later. But in the Hebrew mind, the word fulfill is the same word for resurrection. So I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. In the Hebrew mind, the word fulfill is this, it has the same, it's the same word for resurrection. Kum is the word, kum. It meant to arise or to stand up or to fill up. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. And to the Jewish community, they would have heard something like, you came to make it rise. You came to make it stand up. You came to fill it to its fullness. Jesus came to show us what the law has always been about. To make it stand upright and come to life. To resurrect what we have left for dead. Friends, Jesus didn't come to make the Old Testament invalid. He came to bring it to life. He came to reveal to us the full implications of everything that God has been about in the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is teaching us what the law has always been about. Hear this. Jesus is teaching us what the law has always been about. And then he's going to show us what it looks like lived out in his life. And then if you continue the story, equip us to do the same. Soon in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we're going to be that we'll be going through this semester. That's what we're doing this semester is reading Matthew chapters five through seven, uh, which is uh, called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, soon, <clears throat> excuse me, you're going to hear Jesus say something over and over and over again in chapter five and the rest of it. You're going to hear him say, "You've heard it said, but I say." You've heard it said, but I say. Jesus is going to give us his interpretation of the law and the prophets. In our culture, this kind of thing happens with judges, right? Like ultimately with like the Supreme Court, like, like we go to like the highest courts in the land and we ask them to provide their interpretations of the law in our land. And if you've taken your civics courses, we actually don't want our Supreme Court making laws. We want them to interpret laws, right? That's what we ask them to do. I mean, we can sort of, I guess, change that in our country or whatever based on voting, I don't know. But, but that's how, historically at least how the ideal behind the Supreme Court is that these folks interpret laws for us. In a similar way, Jesus says, you've heard it said. In other words, you've had an understanding of how the law is interpreted. You've heard other people give their interpretations of what God's law is and what his prophets, prophecies are, what they mean for our lives. You've heard that, but I say, I say, and can you imagine this? I mean, I just want you to hear this because I think sometimes when we read the Bible or quote the Bible, we, we sort of um, give it a pass on some of these things and don't think of it like it would feel if we heard it for the first time. If I got up here tonight and I said, friends, so Jesus says this, but I want to tell you what I say. I know that the Bible says this, but here's what I say. Incidentally, if you ever hear somebody teaching that way, uh, please do not send them to their teaching, <laughs> okay? Um, but Jesus looks out at this crowd 
that, that has this version of what they think the law and the prophets are about. He says, you know, you have this understanding of what God has been up to for the past 2,000 years through his people and through all of God's history through creation. You've heard it said, and I'm sure you've heard lots of things, but I'm going to tell you what all of this really means. I'm going to tell you what all of this is really about, what it's actually about. You've heard it said, but I say. Friends, I don't want you to miss this. The authority with which Jesus speaks is crazy. We'll read later at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which I commend to you, like read through the semester with me. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, when people walked away, when he finishes his sermon, all they could talk about is his authority. Who talks like this? Who looks at the law and the prophets and says, you've heard it said, but I say, here is one with authority. He spoke as if he had the authority to tell us the full and final meaning of what the law and the prophets are about. Who did Jesus think he was? Jesus would claim later that all authority in heaven and earth was his. And that he alone has the right and the ability to interpret all of this correctly. And so he says, here's what I have to say. Listen. I want you to see first how much authority Jesus spoke with in this sermon. You've heard it said, but I say. And second, when he does this, he's not taking the law to a new place. He's providing the correct way to understand it and live it out. Later, for example, he's going to say, and I, I just said that, I actually don't think a lot of us believe it. Like you, you might just, maybe the sentence sound like a good structure or something, and you, you like nodded along, maybe. Okay, Jesus is not doing something with the law that it wasn't always intended to do. He isn't doing a whole new thing with the law here. He's fulfilling it. So later, for example, he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, I'm paraphrasing, you shouldn't lust. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say you shouldn't even lust. And if you've already looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. When Jesus says that, he's actually telling us. This is what it means by him fulfilling the law, making it stand up, bringing it to life, resurrecting this thing in front of us. He's telling us that the law has always been about this. It's not that lust used to be okay as long as you didn't actually commit adultery physically, but now that Jesus is teaching this new thing, it's not okay. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is giving us a more full teaching of the law that was delivered by himself years ago. That don't commit adultery was always intended to lead us to honoring one another sexually. Always. More on that in a couple weeks. You see, Jesus isn't changing the law or introducing new laws. He's fulfilling it. Okay, so as an example, like when I was in elementary school, um, uh, uh, girls were terrifying and strange. Um, and in middle school, uh, girls were terrifying and interesting. Uh, and in high school, um, girls were terrifying, but I liked them. And, and then in my 20s, girls were just confounding and complicated. Uh, but now, women, I understand that, that women are holy and wonderful and mysterious. I know that's true of my wife. I know that's true of my daughters. I know that's true of each and every woman that's participating in this tonight. Now, listen, my understanding of women has shifted and changed throughout my life, right? Like, terrifying and strange, right? To, to holy and wonderful and mysterious. Like, my understanding 
of women has shifted and changed throughout my life. But have women changed? Like, was it true that 40 years ago, women just actually were strange and terrifying? They weren't holy and mysterious and wonderful. But now they are. No, of course not. Women were holy and mysterious and wonderful the whole time. It just took me a while to get there. You know what I mean? You understand, like, women haven't changed. My perspective and my my understanding has shifted and changed. When Jesus gives us his interpretation of the law, he isn't changing the law. He's changing how we understand the law and what it means for us to live it out. Later, and some of you may be familiar with this, Jesus says, the whole of the law and the prophets, the whole of it is about loving God and loving others. If you want to understand what all of this is about, it's about loving God and loving others. What are the 613 Torah laws about? What are all the prophecies leading up to? What is God desiring for his people as he instructs them to live? He is teaching them and leading them and equipping them and sending them out into the world in order that they might love God and love others and that other people might see their good works and glorify the Father in heaven. He's always been about this. When Jesus is asked, what does all this mean? He doesn't flinch. Love God and love others. That's what they mean. He's not changing the Old Testament laws. He's fulfilling them. He's making them stand upright in his teaching. And 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 in his life, he's bringing them to life before our eyes and in the history of the world. And, And if you want to know what some of that looks like in its particulars, then just stick with us in the coming weeks as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus right now is teeing up what he's about to get into. He's about to have all of these moments when he says, I've come to fulfill it. And then he says, so you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. This is Jesus showing us in his teaching how he's fulfilling each of these in his teaching. And then he's going to live out these realities with his life. And like I said, he's then going to send his spirit to the church to equip her to do the same. Let's round out our text tonight. Let's look at the next verse. He says, then truly I say to you, the, the word is actually amen. That's what, when it says truly, truly, or in your old King James translations, it'll say verily, verily. When Jesus says, amen, I I say to you, we should stop and listen. One Bible commentator says we should underline whatever's next. Because Jesus isn't, we should underline all that he says, okay? It's very important. But he has these moments where he heightens our attention by saying amen first, which is sort of strange. Normally we say amen at the end. He says, amen, I'm saying something to you right now, listen. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And Jesus here is em- he, he's emphasizing how serious he is about all of this. So unless you think he's exaggerating in what he just said, that he didn't come to abolish it, he came to fulfill it. He then digs deeper and puts his foot on the gas pedal, so to speak. He says, not a single dot of an I, not a cross of a T, and all of the law will be overlooked. I am going to fulfill every aspect of this law and prophets. And before you get too literal, you need to understand how Jesus would have thought about this. Some of you, this will be fun in like an Old Testament discussion at that coffee shop. Okay, but like, how could Jesus fulfill menstruation laws in the Old Testament as a guy? He doesn't, when he's teaching this way in a Hebrew, this isn't in my notes and I'm talking about Um, moon cycles. This is dangerous. Uh, But like Jesus, when he's talking about fulfilling the law, I need you to loosen your grip in your Western postmodern mind and hear it from a place of humility, how Jesus would have taught it and how his disciples would have heard it. They weren't combing through 613 laws, checking boxes. 
They were asking, what is God up to in all of this? And Jesus is saying, listen to me and watch me and respond to me and I'll show you. I'm going to teach you what all of these things really mean. I'm going to do what the law and the prophets have always been about. Bringing about heaven on earth and the redemption of all creation. So he would say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The last couple of verses say this, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands, and, which is interesting, right? Some of you have been taught somewhere that there's no difference in Jesus' commands. It's not biblical to say that. Like there are differences in terms of weightiness and importance in the commands of God and in the moral codes, for sure. Certain things are more important than others, for sure. Um, read your Bible. Uh, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, Jesus is doubling down. Given how little um, many of us know about the Bible and how rarely we take it seriously, I actually think this is going to land pretty hard with some of us. Okay, so I'm from, many of you know this, I'm from Seattle, Washington. Um, uh, rest in peace, Seattle Sonics during the uh, NBA playoffs. Um, and when I moved down here, I knew it was the Bible Belt. And I could see churches and all these like street corners around here. And I thought, man, like what do I have to teach these people? Like they probably know the Bible really well. And as a matter of fact, within the last 10 years, of, uh, Chattanooga was rated by a particular group as the most biblically literate city in America, which now makes my heart break. In my very first core group that I led uh, when I moved to the South in 2005, my very first core group, I had four guys in that group from four different Christian traditions, okay? Um, which, by the way, if you haven't signed up yet for a core group, this is the last week to sign up, I think. So sign up for a chat session, and find out if this is really something you want to do because um, uh, you don't want to miss out on the opportunity. And friends, even if it's not a core group, you don't need to be living life alone. You don't need to try to go through this faith alone. God has not equipped you to do all this alone. Um, I know that it's hard to do anything extra right now. Um, consider this stuff not extra, but like kind of a required baseline for health is living out our life and our faith with others, okay? Um, in any case, my very first core group when I was down here, four guys, four different Christian traditions. And uh, like I was a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Methodist, and a guy from a non-denominational church in Knoxville. And, and if you don't know what those words mean, I didn't either then, but there you go. Okay, and a couple months into this group, um, I had this, we had this one meeting and I just said to these guys, uh, because something kind of came up and I said, hey, how many of you guys have ever read the Bible? And, and you can imagine their response. Um, so, so then I said, well, how many of you have read the New Testament? And friends, I was really surprised to find out that none of them from any of these four Christian traditions had ever read the New Testament. And, and listen, I know that that's a lot of reading. I do. I, that's a lot of reading. That if somebody were, if I stood right now and were to read out loud the New Testament at a normal, audible, verbal pace, it would take somewhere between 18 to 20 hours to read the entire New Testament. Okay? So like a couple of seasons of a Netflix show. And you can read the entire New Testament for example, which framed that way, it doesn't seem like a lot, but given our current cultural practices and our attention spans because of those practices, I know that reading for 18 to 20 hours is a lot and on top of schoolwork, I know it is too, okay? Um, but still, I was kind of surprised, right? So, so that, that none of them had ever read the New Testament. And I was like, and that wasn't like one particular like 
church denomination. It was all these guys, right? And so then I was like, well, how many of you have like read one book of the Bible? And Adam raises his hand. And I was like, oh, thank God. You know, Adam, what'd you read? And he said, I read Romans because you told us to read it for homework last week, which is what you get if you join my core group. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of laughed, but it was hard, right? So listen, here's what I'm getting at. Friends, um, we're not in danger of taking the Bible too seriously in our culture. When Jesus says, um, not one iota, not one dot will pass away until all this is accomplished. We're not in danger of taking him too seriously with this. We're not in danger of really trying to listen to Jesus and follow him, but we're doing it too much. One of my favorite quotes from one of my heroes, G.K. Chesterton, is this. He says, Christianity has, has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. When Jesus steps onto the scene and begins to talk about his kingdom coming to bear on this earth, he says that if you want to be great in his kingdom, then do and teach the commands I'm interpreting for you. If you do and teach these things, you will be great in the kingdom of heaven. If you relax these things, if you teach other people to relax them, you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. And I know this language makes some of us nervous, friends, but these are the words of Jesus. And listen, if you're actually wanting to enter the kingdom of God and be great in God's kingdom, the grace here is you don't have, there's so much grace here, but one of the graces here is you don't have to guess what that journey looks like. Just do and teach what Jesus says. Don't worry about all the religious people that you see around you who don't drink and, and, and uh, you know, they read their Bible in public. And I'm not criticizing that stuff. I mean, when we begin to look at how other people are interpreting this stuff and living it out, Jesus isn't comparing you to all them, friends. He says, he's, you've heard it said from those people of old, from the people that you've grown up with, from the people behind cameras, you've heard it said, but I say. The kind of righteousness of reading your Bible in public doesn't get you into the kingdom of heaven. You pay attention to what Jesus says and then respond. You'll be great. You'll be great. And if you don't find the kingdom of Jesus, if you don't find that the kingdom Jesus is bringing into this world is really appealing, like if, you don't, if you're looking at Jesus talk about his kingdom and you're seeing this in his life and he is, uh, you know, he's presenting this kingdom and bringing this kingdom where the poor are blessed and where people who mourn are comforted and a kingdom which brings dead things to life, if that's not appealing to you, then you obviously aren't gonna care about entering it or being great. So no worries, right? But if the kingdom Jesus is bringing into the world is something that you want to be a part of, he is the way in. He is the way in. And he is teaching very clearly how to be great in his kingdom, how to grow in his kingdom, how to make this kingdom a place that feels like home for you. What does Jesus say about anger? And what ought we to do with that? What does Jesus say about anxiety? What should we do with that? You've heard it said about anxiety. What do I say, Jesus says? Whoever does these things and teaches others to do them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. You may even remember at the end of this gospel account, at the end of Matthew, it's the great commission, it's called, at the end of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus instructs his disciples to teach, among other things, to teach people to obey everything I commanded. And friends, I want to take my foot off the pedal of this 
because I know we don't take the Bible that seriously and Jesus is teaching that seriously. And we're like, I know, for example, reading the New Testament is hard. So maybe read one verse or something, you know, like I'm tempted to do that too, but I'm literally preaching out of a passage of scripture where Jesus says, do and teach this. And if you relax it, you'll be least. And I would like to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm friends, I want to follow Jesus. I want to obey Jesus. His way is life-giving and his kingdom is better than the kingdoms of this world. And if you listen carefully, listen, if obey sounds kind of harsh to you, everybody else is just spinning their versions of the kingdom. But both of our presidential, main presidential candidates right now have not just a kingdom, but they have a, certain practices that they need us as citizens to partake in, to obey, to do, in order for that kingdom to come about. Jesus is offering an other kingdom, a rival kingdom, a better kingdom. And he too says, if you want to be great in this kingdom, just like any kingdom, you've got to follow practices that are in line and in alignment with this kingdom. Friends, do them. And I'm going to teach them. And I hope you do too. And apparently, <laughs> apparently, as we respond to Jesus and teach others what Jesus taught us, Apparently, everything Jesus is teaching is what God has been up to since the beginning of creation. That's what I want to land on tonight. So that when you step back and you look at the life and the teachings and the work of Jesus Christ, he wants you to know that this is what God has been about since the foundations of the world. Do you know that one of the only images that we have of Jesus when he was a young boy we have this image of him as a 12-year-old in the middle of a synagogue in dialogue with religious leaders and teachers of the day. He's hearing their interpretations and he's giving his own, as a 12-year-old boy, he's giving his own sort of teachings back and, he's, and he's, he's so enraptured in it that when his parents begin to go back home from their pilgrimage to the synagogue, they, they leave him there and they forget where he is and they come back and find him and he's in the midst of this discussion. My hope and prayer tonight is that you come to love the Bible that Jesus loved that you come to love the Bible Jesus read. He spent his life fulfilling everything that the law and the prophets were pointing to. And as he grew up, he spent, like his library was the Old Testament. I want you to love the Bible that Jesus read. I want to close tonight with a couple of reasons for why you might consider reading the Old Testament. And then I want to give you one piece of advice. First of all, um, I want you to read the New Testament because, or the Old Testament, because otherwise reading the New Testament is like the punchline to a joke without the joke. It's like the answer to a question we didn't ask. You know, my son does this all the time. He plays like Fortnite. That's like, you guys probably all know it's this video game. And I've never played Fortnite, but he's constantly telling me about updates, but I don't have any idea what these things mean. And so he's like, oh my gosh, daddy, you'll be so excited to hear this. And I'm like, buddy, I have no idea what that gadget is or what it does or why it's important. And so then I have to like get him to back up and give me a little bit of history. So then I'm like, ah, oh, I can see why you really are excited about that. You see what I'm saying? When you don't read, when we don't read the old Testament, I mean, listen, like to, to, by one person's estimate, for example, the book of revelation, this is one of the reasons we dodge it. It's 80% quotations from the old Testament. A New Testament book is 80% quotations from the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews is no different. Matthew, this very gospel we're reading about, is quotation after quotation after quotation from the Old Testament. 
When Jesus comes to say that he is fulfilling the law and the prophets, if you don't know what the law and the prophets are, then that's an invitation to rewind a bit, to go back to see what leads up to this. Second, now more than ever, we need to know that the God is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. I know that many of us, we struggle, all of us probably struggle with what does God think about us? And what's God up to? And how do I fit into those plans? And, and in the midst of this chaotic cultural moment, it, the sands are shifting and the, the, the tectonic plates are like moving apart. Like the whole thing feels insecure and unsettling. And there is a well of peace and confidence, like a sense of being relaxed, which can come from knowing that God has not changed throughout the course of history. That what he's been up to at the foundations of the world, he is still moving toward. And it's crazy how helpful it is when you can look back at one of your brothers and sisters that lived 4,000 years ago and you can identify with their story and recognize that the God that you see revealed in Jesus Christ and is still alive today through the work of his spirit in the church and is reigning on over all things was ministering to them and we, we, we both know the same God. If, if any of you have ever been on a mission trip or been cross-culturally uh, uh, in a like immersed in a cross-cultural expression of faith and you go, oh my gosh, we don't even speak the same language, but it's like we know the same person in Jesus. It's incredibly like therapeutic to our anxious souls. Lastly, I want to invite you to love Jesus' favorite books. I mentioned this already, right? But the Old Testament is what Jesus grew up with. He loved them. He taught from them, these books. Often I find myself asking people I love and admire, like, what are your favorite books? And then I read them or I try to exchange books with them because I know that, that when I do this, that I'm going to get to know them better when I know the things that they love and the things that unlock their heart. So if you tell me that your, your favorite book or, or your favorite Netflix show or your favorite artist, by engaging those things, I can actually come to know you a bit better, right? Jesus' favorite books are the Old Testament. That's what he grew up with. That was his library that he loved. If you want to know him and love him better, maybe it's worth looking at what was on his bookshelf and what he spent time with. Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. Stick with us in the Sermon on the Mount, friends. He's about to show us what that looks like in his teaching. He's going to um, sort of practically unpack these things. And then he's going to show us it with his life, and he's going to show the whole world what this looks like through the church. And as we end tonight and move toward discussion groups, um, I want to give you one piece of wisdom when you're engaged in the Old Testament. Because um, if you're hearing this and you're taking it seriously, maybe you'll take a, a risk and crack open the Old Testament. I want to give you a piece of advice. You know how like when you watch a, a really good mystery, like a, a show, like a really good mystery, it's true when you read a book too, but probably you guys are watching shows more than reading books. Um, if you watch a really good mystery, if the story's told really well, like if you get the sense that the story's told well, there's like certain things early on in the story that don't quite fit. Like little things that are kind of disrupting or hard to understand or seem strange or out of place. And like recently I've been watching this TV show called Dark because Matt Rusnagel recommended it to me. And um, there's so much in that show I don't understand. <laughs> I'm like four episodes in. I, I have no clue what's going on. But the storytelling and the acting and everything is so good that I know that those things are going to get resolved later. Like I don't look at those things and go like, 
yuck, turn it off. I trust that though I don't understand it right now, I might come to understand it as I continue with the story. Okay, so stick with me. Because I think many of us have been taught or we assume that we shouldn't move toward difficult things in the Old Testament. That when we read something and it's disruptive for us, or it makes us uncomfortable, or we don't understand it, like many of us think that what we should do is just quiet our thoughts, don't rock the boat, and get in line. Apparently good Christians don't struggle with this kind of thing. Friends, that's not the way that Jewish people were taught to engage the Scriptures. That's not the way Jesus encouraged us to engage the Scriptures. That's definitely not the way Paul encouraged us to engage the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, the difficult stuff, the disruptive stuff, the little things that we notice that seem slightly out of place or seem particularly mysterious, those are often, I wish you'd see it this way, those are often just like an X on a treasure map. I'm telling you, after spending a ton of time learning about the Old Testament in classes, from decades of reading and teaching on the Old Testament, move toward the difficulties. Move toward the things which are mysterious. Don't brush them over too quickly. Don't leave them alone. Don't, pretend, don't, pretend, don't fool yourself into thinking that you need to get in line. When I was 22, I almost didn't follow Jesus because of the flood story. Today, it's one of the stories that helps me most trust that God is for us and not against us. Move toward the difficulties in the Old Testament. 